Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Today, I want to talk to you about experimental art. I'm going to be shifting uh, the focus of this podcast and my blog um, a bit more fully towards um, experimental art making, experimental writing, you know, the actual topic of this podcast, writing the wrong way, um, all the different ways in which you can, you know, not just work as a sort of general artist in a productive manner. I mean, I'll still talk about that stuff sometimes, uh, but I want to shift the emphasis a bit more fully towards the thing that I'm a bit more of a specialist at, which is a writing in an experimental manner or using experimental techniques in art uh, making, uh, and then additionally editing. Uh, you know, getting into editing approaches a bit more fully and more in depth. Uh, the sort of core things that I do. Of course, I'm a, you know a writer who writes a lot of things, and I am you know pretty productive given you know, the limitations on my time, being you know a stay-at-home dad and you know also having a another job, you know, teaching, uh, part-time job teaching. And then at the same time, of course, I'm a writer and I'm doing all this, uh, you know, other stuff like this podcast you're listening to. I'm a pretty productive person over, uh, overall. Uh, but my specific specialties are not really in uh, productivity so much as um, experimental art making. Uh, you know, that's sort of, my PhD is in creative writing and also a literary theory. And my emphasis uh, in the PhD program was on kind of experimental or avant-garde uh, innovative art making. Now there's no real good word for uh, experimental art. I use experimental, but I don't like it, uh, frankly. There's a lot of problems with it. I'll get into actually today the problems with naming uh, the kind of art making that I'm talking about, uh, the problems with the word experimental and the problems with some of the other terms. Um, for lack of a better word, uh, because I, I honestly don't believe there is a better one, I use experimental. So um, just because my focus, again, uh, in as the title of writing the wrong way might imply, is on trying to do things a little differently and in taking an unconventional approach. Um, and in doing so, uh, sort of separating yourself from others a little bit, you know, separating yourself from the crowd somewhat. I think this is a good technique for an artist in a general sense. I think it's one, how artistic development happens, you know, across a, a field. You know, I think that, you know, the art world moves forward and the artistic discipline develops as artists, individual artists and, you know, groups of artists, uh, break from convention and try to do things differently. I think the only way that really happens is through uh, experimentation. So I have a great emphasis on experimentation. You may have also noticed when I talk about productivity issues or just, you know, general working issues, even then my emphasis in many ways is on experimentation, you know, trying different things, seeing what works for you, not necessarily um, operating in line with conventional wisdom, but trying to, uh, you know, try different things and move uh, forward. Uh, the other thing that, of course, I want to get more fully into, which is not going to be the topic today, but in future podcasts, is editing. Uh, I you know I do work also as a freelance editor, of course. You know, you can hire me to freelance edit your work. 
um, just as you can hire me to write something for you, like theoretically at least. And um, I take a really kind of specific and in-depth approach to the editing process that is really structural and really um, a bit unusual compared to what other uh, writers I see and editors I see are doing. You know, I do a lot of editing, for example, on a structural level, uh, not really looking at the words. In fact, most of the real core editing I do it does not involve looking at the manuscript. Um, so it's a certain type of kind of rigid, um, substantive editing that I've kind of developed a system for. So I'm going to talk more about that in other podcasts. Uh, that's not the topic today, but it is something I just want to say. Again, I'm moving kind of closer towards. Again, these two things are a bit more of my specialty. Um, and so I just want to you know, spend a bit more time on them as this podcast develops. Uh, today, I want to talk about experimental art, uh, experimental writing, and just what it is. Uh, because there are a lot of terms for what I would call experimental art or experimental writing. Uh, there's not really a good adjective, like a good name for it. You know, there's no good name for experimental art. Um, many people object to the scientific term experimental, claiming that either science has a capitalistic classism, which I think there's a good argument for, although I don't quite buy that argument, uh, or that art should not be reduced to a form of knowledge production. And so again, uh, there's a sort of interesting argument along those lines. Uh, but I want to get kind of full, more fully into like what experimental art is, not just in terms of like what things do we call experimental art, but just fundamentally, structurally speaking, like what is experimental art? When we're talking about it, when I say, you know, I want to talk about this experimental book, what do I mean? Uh, I think that it is a term that is not really clearly defined. People just tend to use the term to apply to whatever they want to apply it to. Uh, but I think there's a very rigid way in which it should be applied. So you don't have to agree with me on this, but this is how I use experimental art, the specific coordinates of what I think avant-garde or innovative or experimental or you know, radical art are. Uh, so I'm going to get uh, a little bit into what is experimental art, you know, what word maybe uh, might we use I think this artwork has become mainstreamed in a certain sense. You know, you can even pick up a Dan Brown thriller and see various experimental techniques in play. You know, so the um, a novel Angel and Demons, for example, by Dan Brown. Although I wouldn't say it's a great novel in uh, many respects, it is nevertheless an interesting book insofar as it actually uses uh, ambigrams. Uh, and, you know, name me another book at all that uses ambigrams. You know, word, an ambigram, by the way, is an image that is a word. So it's a bit of a concrete poetry uh, uh, technique in a sense. And it's an image that is a word that can be read backwards and forwards, upside down, right side up, and it looks exactly the same. Uh, so those are ambigrams. And Dan Brown uses these extensively, or not extensively, but he does use them you know, kind of prominently in Angels and Demons. Um, I don't think anyone would call Dan Brown an experimental author, uh, but he does take a number of things that sort of are in line with this concept of writing the wrong way. Uh, so I just use that as a quick example. I'll talk more about you know that and maybe in another podcast, but just to use Dan Brown as a really quick example of somebody who's using experimental art techniques. But I wouldn't call what he does experimental art. Uh, just like you can you know be using horror 
elements. You can have a zombie in your story, but not necessarily be writing a horror story. You know, horror is a certain genre that has really specific things that it does, but it also has these elements. You know, zombies are a horror element, but you can imagine a romance story that, you know, features a zombie. In fact, I've seen numerous ones. Fido is a Canadian example. The author Jason has a really interesting book called, um, uh, now I blanked on the name of it, but Jason has a, a, a book about uh, zombies that are kind of fall in love. It's weird love story zombies. So those are stories that are, again, they're romance, uh, love story dramas, but they're not horror stories. They just have this horror story element. Uh, similarly, again, we see experimental techniques in all sorts of mainstream places, but we don't necessarily see experimental art all the time, although we do have moments where it does hit the mainstream. The Weeknd has a certain uh, songs that I would say classify at least partially as experimental art, you know, as does you know the rapper Future. Uh, even to some degree, uh, a song like... Um, Lil Uzi Vert uh, has a song um, that is um, uh, now I'm just blanking on the, the only Lil Uzi Vert song I like <laughs> is this song um, uh, that I'll put in the show notes. I'll remember it later and I'll put it in the show notes. The show notes are available at um, jonathanball.com slash 23. So again, jonathanball.com slash 23. You can read uh, the kind of scripted version of the uh, little essay that I'm going to, you know, uh, give you now on it. what is experimental art, and why should we care about it, uh, maybe what words might we use, and so on. Uh, so johntheball.com slash 23 for all that information. But as I say, uh, just to dive in, no good name for experimental art exists. You know, people object to the term experimental often because of the scientific basis of, of it. They just don't like the tone or um, some uh, ideological aspect of the a scientific uh, term, um, less grandly, uh, but I think a little more eloquently, uh, filmmaker Guy Madden uh, once said to me that he objected to uh, the term experimental when people called his work experimental uh, because it annoyed him uh, because he wasn't experimenting, he was actually doing things. And I thought that was the best objection. Although I still use the term experimental, I think that is in some ways the best objection to it. Um, your experiments are sometimes not just experiments like they're actually you're actually doing things often uh, as an experimental writer um, but it still is the term that I think uh, is the most neutral in a certain respect and so I do tend to use it um, it also is something that people will google <laughs> so you know there's a certain value to it as a kind of keyword let's say um, some people speak of innovative art uh, I hear that term a lot uh, my joke is that they only use experimental artists say innovative art when they want investors because it has this you know very business-like connotation that I don't think is usually in line with the goals of experimental art um, so it's you know a good way to brand experimental art I guess to call it innovative um, I mean I've done that from time to time but for the most part I think experimental is more accurate a radical is maybe the term that best captures the spirit of experimental art, but I think radical connotes or suggests a progressive politics. And often uh, experimentalists in history have been straightforwardly fascist uh, or even, you know, more minimally 
have been reactionary or conservative. I don't think there's anything in experimental art that necessarily implies that it is progressive in its politics. Although, of course, it can, it can be. Uh, you hear the term avant-garde a lot, the militaristic term avant-garde. I think uh, it is a good term in a sense that it implies an artist who's at the forefront of social change. But I think in some ways I, I avoid avant-garde just because it's a bit of a quaint anachronism in my view. You know, this is an era where everyone's an artist and nobody cares. So the idea of an artist being at the forefront of anything socially I think is a little grandiose. Again, I don't object to these terms necessarily. Um, I think the most precise term I've actually heard is from uh, uh, Gregory Betts, who uh, wrote a book called Avant-Garde Canadian Literature, it's an academic book. And in Avant-Garde Canadian Literature, he uses a term uh, that I believe he invented. I can't quite trace its precise origins, but um, the term he uses for today's experimentalism is post-avant, so sort of a post-avant-garde. Uh, now, I think that in some ways that is the best term. Uh, because it refers, and this is uh, here I'm quoting Betts, it refers, quote, uh, to experimental modes of art making that challenge the various hegemonies of neoliberalism and modernity, but without much tangible faith in progress or revolution, end quote. Uh, so I like that, uh, but, you know, nobody uses the term post-avant. That's what it boils down to. I think is the best term is post-avant art. Nobody uses it. So <laughs> I've kind of defaulted to uh, experimental. Whatever you want to call it, though, experimental art has mainstreamed itself in many respects. Uh, there's a great uh, poet uh, turned media professor named Darren Wurschler, uh, who, you know, in a weird aside, actually mentioning Guy Madden earlier, Wurschler wrote a great book on uh, the film My Winnipeg by Guy Madden. But Darren Wurschler routinely tweets out about hashtag everyday conceptualism. Uh, hashtag everyday conceptualism. If you, you, you know, click on that, uh, throw that into Twitter, you'll find a whole bunch of obsessive practices or projects that in a bygone age, like in the past, would have been only the domain of conceptual artists, uh, but now you know, are things that kind of regular people are doing. Um, you see experimental influences or even just straight up experimental art mainstreaming itself, uh, whether in trap music uh, in many respects, uh, Griffin Poetry Prize shortlist um, here in Canada. Experimental art is appearing everywhere in some form. You know, Andy Warhol uh, might as well have predicted that in this future we would all be experimental artists for 15 minutes before we became bored and went out for avocado toast. Uh, or maybe just professionalized ourselves as bizarre and our bizarre obsessions as tech startups. Uh, so why don't we just dis drop the descriptors and call it art? You know, if experimental art is so mainstream now in many respects, if it has taken over uh, in certain domains uh, in the art world in many respects, you know, in the visual arts, experimentalism is in fact the mainstream. In music, we see uh, we've seen with the rise of hip hop, a lot of experimental techniques become mainstream, and so on. Why call anything experimental art? Why not just call it art? Well, I think there is still a value to the descriptor. In many ways, that fundamental gesture of experimental art as a genre, let's just call it a genre, uh, although I don't think it's quite a genre, but let's just uh, you know, think about it as that in a sense. I think the fundamental gesture of experimental art is different uh, from the mainstream, even if it is in the, in the mainstream, um, because the fundamental gesture of experimental art is detachment from art proper. 
uh, its most extreme form, therefore, is anti-art. Uh, the basic tech, and this is my argument, my thesis that I'm going to throw at you, and I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking a bit through. Uh, the basic technique of experimental art is self-reflexive defamiliarization, uh, which I'll unpack later. <laughs> but the basic technique of experimental art is self-reflexive defamiliarization, and its goal is conceptual violence. So let's just talk about the term self-reflexive defamiliarization. I know that's a mouthful, uh, but all it means is that experimental art usually works to make art strange. So that term defamiliarization comes from a Russian uh, theorist, Viktor Shiklovsky, who wrote a 1917 essay called Art as Technique. And uh, in the essay, he theorized, Shiklovsky theorized that, quote, the purpose of art is to impart the sensation of things as they are perceived and not as they are known. The technique of art is to make objects unfamiliar, to make forms difficult, to increase the difficulty and length of perception because the process of perception is an aesthetic end in itself and must be prolonged." End quote. Um, so poetry, I think, provides the cleanest example of this, of uh, this attempt to kind of take uh, the world and um, take artistic techniques and you know take objects that we are normally uh, familiar with and defamiliarize them render them unfamiliar so that we pay this additional level of attention to them you know, when um, uh, when Marcel Duchamp takes a urinal and puts it in an art gallery buys a urinal at a hardware store and installs it into an art gallery as an art object um, one of the things that is happening there among others is that this thing that we normally disregard and don't look at, um, you know, as much as we can, we just disregard it, don't look at it, only use it, uh, a urinal, now gets moved into a position where we cannot use it, we can only look at it, we can only regard it, uh, in this case, as art rather than as something that has a practical purpose. And so there's a way in which we, you know, look at the urinal uh, now as an aesthetic object, like a thing of potential beauty. Whether we find it beautiful or not, we're being asked to consider it in that term, uh, along those ter lines. Uh, and so uh, that's the basic technique of defamiliarization. The technique, uh, or any number of techniques, are being used in art making uh, to perform that sort of an operation. Uh, even if you're just writing description in a novel, you know, you're describing the uh, a blue hat. Well, you describe that blue hat in a way that pulls it kind of into perception and prolongs our exposure to it. In you're using all sorts of artistic techniques often to describe the thing in a way that makes the reader pay attention to it. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother to describe it. Once you start describing it in any number of ways, again, any number of techniques, almost all of them are used to uh, take that object that we might normally just look over or look past or simply um, ignore or just glance at in everyday life. But now in the novel, we're being asked to pay an extreme amount of attention to it, if only for a minute, if only for a few sentences. Poetry, I think, provides the cleanest example of this because form is foregrounded in poetry. Uh, poetic, people don't talk like uh, poems are structured. As poetic techniques, uh, including rhyme and including line breaks, uh, poetic techniques in general typically produce this estrangement effect, uh, setting poetic language apart from language as we see it elsewhere. Even in a poem that's using found language, moving it into this new context, you know, the context of considering it a poem, 
and any other techniques you might use, like adding line breaks or whatever, uh, all those techniques are used to defamiliarize the lifted language. Um, experimental poetry then, uh, I would argue, uses poetic techniques in a manner that draws attention to the poem as a poem. So experimental art has this additional level of this meta level of drawing attention to the poem as a poem and complicating its relationships to its author, to its audience, to the tradition, or even just to the material out of which it's made, you know, language in this uh, common example. An excellent example of this kind of thing is the BP, uh, extreme example, but an excellent example also is BP Nickel uh, and his translation, quote unquote, his translation of Matsuo Basho's famous haiku. So of course the haiku originally is in Japanese. Um, here's a conventional translation of Basho's most famous poem. Uh, this translation is by R.H. Blythe. The old pond, a frog jumps in, the sound of water. So that's the traditional kind of translation of the Basho poem. Here's B.P. Nichols' translation. Uh, he did a few variations, but here's his most, er, his best translation. Q. So this letter Q, which he drew on a piece of paper. Uh, now, if you look at the letter Q and like sit there and draw the letter Q in your mind or draw it on a piece of paper in front of you, now look at it. The circle is the pond, the old pond from Basho's poem. The line, like the line of the Q, is the frog's trajectory. A frog jumps in in the second line. Well, that's the line uh, of the Q. The sound of water, the third line of the haiku, uh, which is the sound of the frog's plop, of course, is uh, the sound of us reading the letter Q aloud, Q. You know, Q. Q is also, by the way, the 17th letter of the alphabet, which uh, preserves in a certain strange way the 17 syllables of the haiku. You know, that's his nod to the haiku structure. Uh, so you might ask, is the letter Q, just a Q drawn on a piece of paper, is that a reasonable translation of Basho's haiku? Uh, if you encountered, you know, the letter Q just by itself, with no title, no commentary, you know, me not telling you anything about it to contextualize it, nothing about the letter Q indicates that it should in any way be considered a translation of an ancient haiku. Uh, it's just letter Q. Uh, but, you know, as you've seen, it could be considered a reasonable, even an excellent tr experimental translation. Uh, so I think the thing to consider is that the project of B.P. Nichols' poem, you know, his Q translation, is not so much to offer a reasonable translation as to call into question the nature of translation itself. You know, set a Q against the entire literary tradition of attention to this one poem, this very often translated poem. So the core subject of Nichols' translation is itself and its contextual position inside of literary history. Its core approach is one of making the letter form Q strange, making us look at a Q like it was some sort of cross between a comic and a nature poem, uh, as if it was some sort of translation of this haiku. I think experimental art is best understood, uh, therefore, as a subgenre of whatever larger genre it's parasitically infected, uh, one that uses a specific type of defamiliarization as its core technique, a self-reflexive approach it has the goal of defamiliarizing art itself, making art seem strange and unfamiliar to an audience that's been jaded by exposure to the artwork. This is why I advise people to write and produce experimental art because by its nature, I think uh, an experimental artwork 
positions the author and positions that artwork as uh, different fundamentally, and but still of a piece with um, this larger literary history context. Uh, this creates, you know, the common reactions also, though, um, of like, but is it art? The but is it art question mark reactions and debates. Now, these are really boring debates because the answer is always the same. Yes, it's art, but it's trying hard not to be art. Now, I mentioned The weekend earlier. When The weekend sings, you know, quote, this ain't no fucking sing-along, so girl, what you singing for? End quote. Imagine that's an actual weekend line. And imagine him singing that in a concert to the fans in the front row. This ain't a fucking sing along, so girl, what you singing for? Uh, it's not an admirable <laughs> interaction with the audience. You know, it's not an admirable line in many respects, but it is, I think, of a piece with um, this kind of experimental art because it calls attention to the situation and the dynamics of the artwork's production and consumption. You know, it, you know it's taking you out of that. Uh, familiar scenario of somebody singing to you and you singing along with them as you sit in the front stand in the front row um, it's kind of a violent call to attention but it is kind of calling attention to the situation and taking you out of the situation I think in a certain respect uh, we see the same kind of calling attention at play in the theme song to its Gary Shandling show which is a you know wonderful theme song which I'll a link to in the show notes. It's Gary Shandling's show where the theme song just talks about how it is the theme song to Gary Shandling's show. Shakespeare's Hamlet, of course, is the most famous example maybe of this calling attention, you know, the play within a play, calling attention to the situation of uh, the audience watching a play. Again, I mentioned Marcel Duchamp's Fountain, which is the urinal in the art gallery. Uh, Anne Carson's autobiography of Red uses a lot of these techniques as well. Nichols' Q, of course. Um, you could, the list goes on. Uh, when we consider experimental art apart from its social historical context, so you know, take it apart from the groups that may or may not identify as avant-garde artists, and instead just look at what it is, like its actual formal approach that these artworks are using, whether they rise from the fringes, whether they appear in the mainstream, uh, what we see at time and again, you know, over and over, is the same attempt to make some aspect of the artwork unfamiliar to its audience and jar them uh, for attention first and maybe some grander notion uh, secondarily. The grander notion, by the way, uh, usually takes some form of conceptual violence. So this is the second part of my definition of what experimental art is. Um, its goal, I think, is conceptual violence. Now, conceptual violence has more of a ring to it than self-reflexive defamiliarization, but I think it's harder to define. Uh, the phrase contains two connected meanings, both of which I think are important to experimental art uh, practice. One is the desire to uncover violence inside of existing concepts, uh, where maybe we don't believe violence is inherent, and the goal also of doing violence uh, to those concepts, breaking into them and breaking them apart. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, uh, the media theorist, uh, famously uh, said, quote, the medium is the message. Uh, and that uh, idea applies here because so often this uh, conceptual violence occurs on a formal level. So he also said this in his 1964 uh, masterwork, uh, McLuhan's Understanding Media. He writes, McLuhan writes this, quote, the artist is the one in any field 
scientific or humanistic, who grasps the implications of new knowledge in experimental art. We are given the exact specifications of coming violence to our own psyches from our own counter-irritants or technology. Um, so we, again, singling out experimental artists in this manner, that they're the ones who um, grasp the implications of new knowledge and give us the, spe the exact you know, specifications of coming violence. The reason McLuhan believes this is uh, because experimental artists use technology wrong. Again, uh, instead of using it for its intended purpose, they misuse it to reveal its intent unintended effects. Uh, experimental artists draw our attention to its form, to the medium, more so than its content, the message, as their message. Experimental art works to uncover the violence inherent in its technologies and in how they are ordinarily used. So not just the coming violence, but current and past violence is the subject proper of experimental art. Uh, in experimental poetry, for example, the technology under discussion is usually language itself. Uh, a great deal of experimental poetry repurposes language to reveal undercurrents of violence in ordinary speech or in the specialized ways that we discuss certain topics. Even if the point of our discussions is supportive, the way we talk often reveals inherent biases and aggressions regarding what we discuss. Any poetic project that takes as a source material language shares this approach intentional or otherwise. So often when we exchange language from its original context, the result is to reveal extraordinary horror and side language that we have hitherto accepted as ordinary. A great book in this uh, vein is Rachel Zolf uh, and her, her book, Human Resources. Uh, it works this way. And Jordan Abel also has a great book called Injun. Um, there's a great line, a first line of that book, or, or one of the uh, starting line of that book is, quote, all them Injuns is people first, end quote. It's such a startling line. It reveals so much double think. And he's you know lifting this line from found materials. Um, I mean, the line inherently has all this violence and aggression against, uh, you know, indigenous uh, you know, people inherent in that phrase. But at the same time, it's being structured as a supportive statement. And I think so often um, this is what experimental artists are trying to do, at least experimental poets. Another common target of experimentalism is narrative structure. Often, uh, narrative presents facts or frag or experimental art will prevent uh, facts or fragments apart from commentary outside of coherence. An often remarked maxim uh, is that we tell stories to order the world to shape its chaos and to express our desires and make sense of things, realigning the messy world for our own comfort. That's why we, you know, tell stories uh, in, in a you know conventional wisdom says. But less remarked upon, because I think it's a more disturbing idea to consider, is that we use violence for the exact same purposes. We use violence to order the world, to shape its chaos, to express our desires, to make sense of things to ourselves, um, to realign the messy world for our own comfort. The narrative act, I think, works in that manner. My whole my book, The Politics of Knives, is about this very idea. Um, how the narrative act has a certain conceptual violence and even something as banal as telling a story of our day involves shaping its bare facts into a particular structure that invalidates other perspectives on events and supports particular political biases. Um, a good deal of experimental art attempts to avoid the artistic conventions that the artist sees intermingled with 
the ego's violent insistence of its primacy. Of course, not everything works that way, but I think that's a very common trend. The base level, I would say, of experimental art uh, in terms of its conceptual violence is to violate ideas about what art is or should be. Maximally, uh, the work will incorporate or attempt actual violence. Whether it's real or thematized, uh, the violent refusals of experimental art and the way it calls attention to itself as art and the violence that's so often inherent in the audience's interactions or reactions to this art uh, accounts for much of the public's discomfort with experimental art. And I just want to end, I know it's you know, throwing a lot of large concepts out. I'm just going to let them sit a little bit. If you want to think a bit more on this topic and whether you think I have something here, Again, go to jonathanball.com slash 23. You can read all this. And again, that'll give you the coordinates of what I would consider experimental art and why I consider this experimental art, what I think is interesting about experimental art, and so on. I'm just going to end with a really brief uh, anecdote that I think is worth uh, just kind of tagging everything with. In 1974, uh, the artist Marina Abramovic laid a gun and a pistol, along with other items, on a table with materials that she invited the public to use on her body in whatever ways they saw fit. Now, nobody murdered her, although they did arrange the gun in an invitation to kill herself. And among other abuses, the audience cut her neck and drank her blood. Magic!